This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Mauerbytes Labs, we try to cut through the confusion regarding Instacart's reported breach. Last month, BuzzFeed News found the information of nearly 280,000 Instacart accounts circling around on the dark web for sale. The data included names, order histories, and the last four digits of credit card numbers. And BuzzFeed News verified the data's accuracy with at least two Instacart customers and a cybersecurity expert. But the story took a turn. As Instacart said, it was not breached. Instead, the company said account owners, perhaps compromise their own security with reused passwords. Our take? Password reuse is bad. Very bad. But cybersecurity, as the saying goes, is a team sport. And if nearly 280,000 team members have a problem, well, that should be a wake-up call for any business to seriously look at its security practices. Because if our best defense against account compromise is convincing people to not use the password 123456, the furthest we'll get is people using 123457. Our threat intelligence team also found that threat actors are continuing to deploy coronavirus-related online scams. The most recent attack wave targets those applying for COVID-19 relief loans relying on phishing emails that impersonate the U.S. Small Business Administration. We found one scam that could deliver the nasty downloader GUloader, and two phishing scams that attempted to steal login credentials or banking information. Back in March, I thought we'd write two, maybe three, coronavirus jokes for all of 2020. But five months later... I'm still in my home, this podcast is still recorded in my living room, and cyber thieves are still relying on the pandemic to scam people. Is this what they meant when they said, we're all in this together? We also warned readers about a Chrome extension that doesn't tell the whole truth about its permissions. The extension, called PopStop, promises to stop pop-ups, and it asks users to grant access to their browsing history. But once installed, PopStop goes further, actually hijacking user searches. I would like to add that the extension also fails to fulfill its stated purpose online, in which, due to a spelling error, it is not a popper blocker, but a poper blocker. The Pope, as I checked this morning, has not been blocked. Finally, we analyzed every misstep taken by Dutch internet service provider Zigo in telling customers about a security flaw in one of the company's devices. Zigo's intentions started strong. With a vulnerability found, the company emailed customers about necessary steps to protect themselves. The email itself, however, raised eyebrows. First, the email went to users who did not own the device with the vulnerability. Second, the email mentioned a vulnerability, but did not specify what it was. Third, the email included a variety of spammy-looking links that promised further instructions. So, to Zigo and every other company facing these issues, some advice. Specify the vulnerabilities you find, and include instructions in the body of the email, not behind a link. Finally, stop relying on corporate email templates that can look, well... A little fishy.
In cybersecurity news across the world, CBR reported that a major Intel leak of some 20 gigabytes of source code, schematics, and other sensitive data was blamed on a misconfigured content delivery network server protected with the password Intel123. Did we not just talk about passwords, people? The Hacker News told readers about the latest developments out of DEF CON 2020, in which presenters showcased vulnerabilities in Zoom's Linux client that could have allowed hackers to swipe user data and even run malware as a subprocess. And for this year's all-digital conference, I can learn all these things without attendees hacking my phone. The Independent warned folks that phishing attacks rose dramatically this summer against Netflix, HBO, YouTube, and Twitch users. As usual, the hackers are likely interested in login credentials that could grant entry to other separate online services, and not in, say, getting all that cool content from YouTube Premium. The Wall Street Journal reported that the video-making app TikTok previously tracked user data by collecting Media Access Control, or MAC, addresses, which is a practice Google banned in 2015. TikTok ended the practice last November, but I imagine the company is more concerned about ending its entire service come this September. Finally, TechCrunch provided some watchdog reporting by showing that following Google's updated advertising policy ban on stalkerware-type applications, some popular apps of the same type still snuck through. This is serious stuff, and we hope Google addresses it soon. Our main story today concerns parental monitoring apps. These online tools give parents the capabilities to spot where their kids go, read what their kids read, and prevent them from, for instance, visiting websites deemed inappropriate. And for the likely majority of parents using these tools, their motives are sympathetic. Being online can be a legitimately confusing and dangerous experience. I mean, if anyone understands that, it's us, a cybersecurity company. But where parental monitoring apps begin to cause concern is just how powerful they are. Listen to some of those capabilities again. Reading every sent and received text message, viewing GPS location and history, looking up call logs that reveal what number was dialed and when, and rifling through all types of media, including goofy videos with friends and private photos. For some of these apps, their capabilities start to sound not so much like parental monitoring so much as child surveillance. As several studies have shown, when the line from safety blurs into surveillance, kids, and especially teens, push back. According to the science magazine Nautilus, a one-year study of junior high students in the Netherlands showed that students who were snooped on by their parents reported more secretive behaviors, and their parents reported knowing less about the child's activities, friends, and whereabouts compared to other parents. Further, the organization UNICEF warned that as children get older, the arguments for constantly monitoring them become harder to defend. The organization said, While parental controls may be appropriate for young children who are less able to direct and moderate their behavior online, such controls are more difficult to justify for adolescents wishing to explore issues like sexuality, politics, and religion. Now, knowing that, of course, doesn't make it any easier for parents to stop worrying. To help us better understand parental monitoring apps, their capabilities, and how parents can choose to safely use these with their children, we're talking today with Emery Roan, Policy Counsel at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Emery, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Emery, for our audience, can you help describe who you are and what you do at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse? Sure. Yeah. My name is Emery Rohn. I'm policy counsel, like you said, at Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. That means I help guide the policy and advocacy goals of the organization. PRC is a consumer privacy nonprofit. We're based in San Diego. We have been for more than 20 years now. We're dedicated to improving privacy for all by empowering individuals and advocating for positive change. So as policy counsel, I direct a lot of our advocacy goals. I keep on top of our legislative efforts and talk to folks like you. Let's get right into it. I mentioned, you know, some of the capabilities at the top of the show of these types of apps, but that's kind of just grazing the surface. Can you tell us first about the capabilities of these types of mobile apps? Yeah, sure. You hit a lot of the big points right in your introduction there. You know, I think it's important to keep in mind that these kinds of apps and services run the gamut. You know, there are the built-in, baked-in parental monitoring features on your Nintendo Switch and on your iPhones and Android devices. There's also, you know, remote services that don't even require to be installed at all that simply keep a tab on your children's social media accounts. And then on the far end of the spectrum, there are very sketchy applications that require you to root or jailbreak your device that hide the application once it's installed that surreptitiously send out not just location information, but all of the communications that your child may send. It may have a key logger on the device. It may let them be able to remotely turn on the webcam or the microphone, remotely be able to see what's on the screen. Point being that it, you know there's a spectrum there from kinds of services and settings that reasonable parents can use to sort of keep their children safe, relatively safe online. And then there's software that is pretty much indistinguishable from spyware, or even stalkerware that is used oftentimes to abuse spouses, significant others, strangers. You know, if you think about what you want to know if you're a parent, and it's a lot of the same things you want to know if you're a stalker. It's a lot of the same things you want to know if you're an enterprise business managing a whole fleet of devices. You know, the point being that the, the same technology can be used for a whole myriad of different ways. And, you know, parental monitoring Maybe something that, you know, you want to dip your toe into, but keep in mind that it certainly exists on the spectrum and it can get really messy really quick. With these quite invasive capabilities, I also wanted to know, are there things that these apps can't do, right? Because part of me, if I had a kid, I'm assuming that they're pretty savvy. They're going to understand how to skirt certain systems. And so, right, I'm wondering as a parent, you know, what can't these things view? Is it as simple as my kid starts using private browsing on their web browser? Does that suddenly mean that one of these types of apps is thwarted? Is it that simple of a relationship? I mean, yes and no, right? I think that first off, to start things off, if you're a parent that's going to be using one of these services in a sort of antagonistic relationship with your child, you can be rest assured that you're setting your kid up on the, uh, the path to learning how to keep secrets from you and learning how to circumvent those restrictions. It's just, it's going to happen. Absolutely. So many of these solutions can be circumvented. Kids are extremely clever. And so, you know, if you're not setting it up correctly or if you're setting it up insecurely, if the application only monitors certain aspects of the device, you know, your kid is going to find ways around that. And that might be such an uphill battle that you should consider that from the outset, whether or not you really want to get into uh, that kind of arms race with your child, because you might find yourself on the losing side of that pretty quickly. 
But to get back to your question, it is going to depend on what kind of service or app you're using. The baked-in features of iOS are really focused on screen time limiting. So you, know, you can manage what applications are able to be installed based on their, their rating in the App Store. You can set which applications can be open at what times. You can set some kinds of you know, explicit filters for Apple content. But you know, the iOS features for parental monitoring are certainly not going to be able to touch Signal or WhatsApp messages. You know, the iPhone baked-in features are not going to do anything about monitoring Facebook. So what you're actually monitoring is absolutely going to depend on the type of monitoring solution you're deploying. I hate using monitoring solution. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like the incorrect word there. But yeah, it's going to depend on the system you're using. While I've been reviewing these, you know, I, I have seen many apps that work just like spyware keyloggers that will mm -hmm. capture absolutely everything coming in and out. Usually those will require your phone to be jailbroken or rooted. Some of the solutions that are available on the App Store might not go that far. Some of them might go just as far. It, it, you know, there's a whole market for these kinds of services. I've seen at least one service that touts that they are deploying AI to help parents you know, manage the massive amounts of information they're getting so that it can do things like predictively warn parents about self-harm or bullying or threats of violence. It's a market, <laughs> uh, the short answer there. Right. You touched on this a little bit here, right? That some of them require jailbreaking or, or rooting the device. And I want to know, it seems like, again, the answer here is it runs the gamut, but are these types of tools available on the Apple App Store? Are they available on the Google Play Store? Or are they all you know, requiring a high-tech proficiency? Are they all requiring jailbreaking and rooting? Things that, I'll be honest here, I don't know how to do. I've tried. I'll, you know, I tried to root my phone once actually for a experiment into monitoring apps. I couldn't get it. So yeah, how, <laughs> what kind of a proficiency is required for deploying these apps? I mean, most of them are dead simple. Many of them are on the app stores. Android tends to have, you know, Google has uh, more of a hands-off approach to their app store, so you're going to find more monitoring apps on there. iOS did make waves last year when they they purged the majority, I think most of the most popular parental monitoring apps on their app store because of the potential for abuse and the potential for stalkerware. Big props to Eva Galperin over at EFF for really driving that change. There are other apps that will require, you know, you to actually have your device and they will disguise what is going on by saying that they have an application and you need to plug in your device to the computer while you run the application. And you know that handles much of the rooting or jailbreaking in the back end so that it's pretty easy for the user. A lot of Android apps are going to be, and, and at least in the ones that I've reviewed, Android monitoring apps tend to have more widespread access to the device than iOS apps do. The iOS monitoring apps, usually you need to install a device profile to the phone, which is a second step. It's certainly not difficult. It can be done entirely on the device by you know, following a tutorial. But that would essentially use the same kind of technologies that enterprise solutions use to manage fleets of devices that would let the user remotely access and wipe and manage the applications on the device. The long and the short of your answer then is that there are certainly jailbreak and rooting solutions, but there's also plenty of options available on the app stores themselves. It is not difficult at all to install these. 
Are these apps popular? Are there any numbers that help us understand or contextualize, right? Are people actually using them? I wish that I had hard and fast numbers on this. I think this is a, an excellent area of research that we hope to see more clarity, more light brought to the area in the future. Right now, I have a couple numbers that I can throw out to you. Uh, Google and iOS are not they generalize the information that they share about downloads on their app stores now. You don't see like the specific number of downloads. But when I plotted the 10 most popular apps and checked on both the app, the Android store, which does show sort of generalized numbers, I found in the order of millions. You know, a number of these okay. apps individually have million plus downloads. The other thing to keep in mind is that we know it's not just parents deploying these tools. The same exact tools are being used by school districts, um, especially as schools give out Chromebooks or iPads to students. They're using these same kind of monitoring software. There's one in particular. I'm going to try to avoid naming specific services and software in this, but there's one that I checked that has a quote on their website that says that in 2018, the company analyzed over 900 million messages across texts, email, social media, and school-issued Google and Microsoft accounts of over 2.6 million children aged 8 to 17. So, Whoa. yeah. Right. That that's coming straight from the website of the app in question because to them, right, that's, that's marketing. That's... 100%. Right. Yeah. Look at they're how... They're very proud of what they're doing. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's hard to wrap your head around it when you're coming from the point of view of these things can be invasive. And that's the way that I was introduced to these, right? I was introduced to these as something that can monitor folks, can monitor children beyond what might be okay, depending on the household. But there is another lens to look at these and it's trying to understand why parents are even using these in the first place. So I wanted to ask you, what is the appeal of these apps for some parents? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. You hit it you know, hit on it certainly at the introduction of the show. You know, the internet is a dark and scary place. <laughs> the internet has been scaring people since its inception. There definitely are dark corners and there's obviously opportunities for abuse and harm uh, if children are using the internet and they aren't careful. Add to that, being a kid in school today seems <laughs> even harder than it was when we were in school. Uh, it's certainly not easy with social media, technology, online platforms. It's easy for bullying, schoolyard politics to, you know, reach into the home outside the schoolyard. The jury is still out on whether internet addiction is a thing, but it's probably a good idea to manage the screen time of your children. You know, there's a whole host of very legitimate interests in keeping tabs on, educating your children on digital literacy and using technology safely. I'm not a parent, but I could certainly understand the inclination as a parent to want to be able to pull up your phone and know exactly what's going on with your child, just like you know exactly what's going on with so many other things, other aspects of your life. Uh, and the internet has trained us to sort of expect these solutions to be available at the tap of a button. I think that the important thing to keep in mind, though, is balancing that with that sort of initial expectation of yours that you had. That is, you know, fundamentally, is it really that different from demanding that your child unlock their diary and give it to you at the end of every day. This world has always been a dangerous place, you know? Uh, yeah. There's always been harm out there. But I think you have to, as a parent, really consider whether or not the solution is talking with your kid about these issues, you know, educating them about the world, being the safe person they can talk to and share their secrets, or if the solution is trying to parent by policy and shelter them until they turn 18. 
by the way, that's ignoring the fact that another side of this that is rarely talked about is that, you know, this stuff gets deployed when kids are kids, but then it sticks around on their devices until they leave the house and sometimes even after they leave the house. Um, there's plenty of horror story reviews on any of these applications on the app stores from teenagers talking about how their parents are you know, making their lives miserable or even adults that are talking about how they still have their parent, the phone their mom gave them when they moved out and now they're 21 years old and their parents demand that they keep these tracking softwares on their phones. So I think, you know, the appeal is pretty clear. I think it's just, it takes a concerted effort to balance that with the realities of what you're opening up. You touched on something, touched on two things that made me curious as well and something that I had been wondering about, which is you said that the, the internet has kind of trained us, right, to find a solution at a tap of a button. And you also said that the world has been dangerous. This isn't different. The internet isn't different in that way that it is also, it also can be a scary place. And something I was curious about is, are these apps addressing new concerns or are these concerns that parents have had for decades, but maybe they haven't really had the tools to address? And what I mean by that is, I think of only what I've seen in fiction and in movies of the lives that children used to have. And it felt like it was a free-for-all, you know? Like <laughs> I see, again, I'm basing this on fiction, so I could be extremely wrong, right? But every single, let's say, like, Stephen King novel has like 11 and 12 year olds just doing whatever they want, like in the city and just hanging out and being unsupervised and playing and wasn't having your kid be gone for the whole day scary. And what I'm curious about here again is like I said, have we always desired these types of surveillance mechanisms? Have we always wanted to know where our kids are and what their conversations are with the friends who, you know, we've only met in fleeting moments at the front door. Have we always wanted to have that, but we just haven't had the capability and now maybe this is scratching that itch? Yeah, I mean, I want to start things off by saying that you're talking to another 30-year-old. So, you know, my experience <laughs> of uh, the Stephen King in 80s childhood adventures is also purely through fiction. So, you know, there's a certain amount of that that I am simply not qualified to speak to. But I do think that there's a component of that question that is important, and that is to consider the ways that technology and the sort of erosion of privacy in the rest of our digital life has sort of normalized this practice and set the stage for parents to not necessarily pick up on why this is immediately objectionable. I think that if you talk to those kids, those parents, when they were 15, living the Stephen King 80s dream life and told them that, hey, you're 15 years old, you've got to wear the GPS ankle bracelet and come home every day so we know where you are, you know, those kids would have uh, revolted. And, you know, it's to a certain extent, I think that parents and kids would revolt today if it was specifically a GPS ankle bracelet because the, the format matters and the, the framing matters. And it could be that you know, because we have just sort of acknowledged that our phones are extremely good at giving up our information to all sorts of services, that we sort of think it's just part and parcel of that larger issue, just part of the modern world. That would be sort of my take on that. I, I would expect that the answer is that yes, and parents have since time immemorial wanted to make sure that their teenagers didn't go around and, you know, act like kids. <laughs> but um, <laughs> The other side of that is that we are uniquely empowered in 2020 
with these technologies that simply didn't exist before. And so, yeah, as we move forward and parents suddenly have the ability to act on this sort of innate parental urge that we've had since time immemorial, maybe we should think carefully about what the implications of that could be. So we've talked about the capabilities here and we've talked about the uses and the appeal, right? The sometimes obvious appeal for some parents. And we've also talked a little bit about the pushback that parents could expect from their kids and also the risk of keeping an app here as a child grows into early adulthood. I'm curious though, there's probably another side here, which is, are there cybersecurity risks? Are these apps secure? Have any apps (laughs) suffered from a data breach? I mean, the answer to your question is, is anything really secure when (laughs) we know that, you know, government agencies to data brokers that we all rely on to, you know, when, when everyone from Experian to the OPM can have data breaches impacting hundreds of millions of Americans, I really think that it's clear more than ever that cybersecurity is not a solved problem. And so are there cybersecurity concerns Absolutely. We've already seen one app, I'm going to name and shame this one, TeenSafe, caught with an unsecured, exposed Amazon web server just last year (laughs) that exposed thousands of users' information. Uh, Thankfully, the specific information exposed in that breach was arguably pretty minor. It didn't have access to all the information that that service has, but certainly the it's undeniable that the more information that is collected, the more risk that is created by having that data there. To that point, a lot of these services have fairly poor privacy policies that you know may be following the bare minimum of what, for example, Apple requires for these kinds of parental man- monitoring software, which is that they don't sell or share their information that they collect to third parties. As far as I know, Android doesn't have the same policy, by the way. But that doesn't mean that that information is being minimized. Doesn't mean that information is being encrypted. Doesn't mean that that information can't be transferred as the result of a sale of the business, for example. So if your concern on these issues is the sort of erosion of privacy more generally, the exposure of personal information to third parties, the data broker market, or the cybersecurity concerns with having information proliferate, that's absolutely a, a valid concern with these applications. All the more reason to, if you are considering dipping your toe into this area, start with the built-in features. Start checking with the iOS parental features. Start with the Android and Google Link features to monitor phones before you start downloading random apps on the internet. I will note that you know in my research for this show in particular, I found at the very least one app that I am not going to name, but I am 99% sure is a scam, despite the fact that there's several dozen YouTube videos and articles that have been generated touting it. So yeah, there's cybersecurity concerns with trusting these businesses with your information when you're buying the software from them especially, by the way, for the software that isn't allowed on the Google or Apple App Store. Uh, If you're having to go through arcane (laughs) techno babble steps in order to (laughs) jailbreak and root your device or get these applications sideloaded, you know, that that is absolutely cause for concern. (laughs) (laughs) You are inevitably, with any of these apps, by the way, you are enabling the app to use certain permissions on the device, which are intrinsically present a cybersecurity concern. So yeah, the the cybersecurity concerns are right up there with the privacy concerns. 
You touched on something here that I saw myself as well for parents who do want to monitor their kids' activity. They want to keep their kids safe online, which is in looking at the guidance from Common Sense Media, right? Family-focused media literacy nonprofit. They started with, first, if you want to do these things, open communication. You have to just be upfront with your kids about your concerns, what you're worried about, what you want them to be doing safely. And then if you want to monitor and protect them online, start with built-in features, built-in iOS features, built-in Google features, Android features. What I wanted to ask is, let's say I'm a parent and I've gone through those steps. I've talked to my child as, as a first, first step and I tried the iOS features, but I really think that I need an app. What are some things that parents can know to, to safely deploy one of these? Absolutely. I'm not a parent, but, you know, I can remember myself as a kid. And, you know, I can certainly empathize with parents wanting to stop teenagers like me from acting like the teenagers we were. And obviously, open communication, transparency, having a dialogue is going to be the way to go, preferably. If you are interested in sort of dipping your toe into this world, obviously, the built-in features are going to be your best, safest bet to just sort of try things out. But like I said earlier, those are pretty limited. You know, iOS is only really trying to let you remote wipe, maybe turn on GPS so you can keep track of your kid if they're out and about and manage some applications. And that's basically it. Which is, by the way, a lot. I say that this is basically it. That's a lot. That's a lot of information. Uh, I wouldn't be comfortable with anyone being, having that information on me. But uh, if you're a parent that is interested, that does have that need, then yeah, let's, you know, the first thing to do is to consider what in particular you need monitoring. Are you concerned with web filtering? You know, is your issue that your child is going on websites that you'd rather than not go on? Or is there issue that your child is running with people that you're not happy them running with and doing things out in the real world that you're not happy them doing. Those are two very different situations, right? Mm-hmm. One of them, the web filtering can be done, you know, pretty innocuously on a router or, you know, there's simple web filtering that does just that. If you need to be tracking people in real time or in real space, you know, that's going to require more intensive surveillance. <laughs> and so, you know, to start things off, you want to be very clear that worried about feature creep. You know, a lot of these services are going to promise the moon and offer every kind of spy trick in the book. And especially if it's just one area that you're concerned about, you probably don't want to turn on every single one of those features. So whatever service you do use, make sure that you familiarize yourself with it, familiarize yourself with exactly what information it's collecting, and familiarize yourself with what sort of toggles and controls you have over that information. We've talked about how important it is to talk with your child about this. You know, I think that transparency and consent is enormously important in here. PRC would not recommend any applications that hide themselves, that there's plenty of apps that really do go the sneaky route where they they are self-hiding once you install them and they run surreptitiously in the background. So don't do that. (laughs) Um, If you have to use the software, you know, try to use software that makes it clear about what information is being collected and when it's being collected. Keep in mind, that's going to throw up a big flag to your child that says, hey, this area is being monitored. Mm -hmm. I might go over and do something over here. And, you know, outside of that, I think that the reviews are an important thing to check. Try to 
read reviews, not just of reviewers and professional technology magazines, but of users, of parents, of mm -hmm. uh, children that have been impacted by this. I think that if you're a parent that is sort of on the fence, I would encourage you to go read some of the reviews because hilariously, almost all of these applications are review bombed in the app stores by the very teenagers that they're surveilling. Um, so you get a great sort of firsthand glimpse into some of the perspectives of these teens that are being subject to this app and try to be upfront. I, I, I can speak anecdotally here that, you know, going back to the question earlier about have parents always wanted to do this way back in the halcyon early aughts, when I was in high school, we had laptops that are progressive high school and, you know, only a few friends of mine had nannyware on it, but the friend that had nannyware installed on his laptop and that had a limiter on his car and a, a special stereo installed in his car stereo to make sure that he couldn't turn the volume up when he got on the highway. Hey, promptly got the heck out of Dodge, went to Florida and then failed out in his first semester. So that's all to say that you know, the child development is obviously way outside the purview of this conversation and our expertise, and no one has a secret manual on how to do that best. But there are concerns about the impact of adult brains when we're being surveilled. It seems common sense to assume that there are going to be impacts on children that have their entire lives surveilled by the people that they're supposed to be trusting the most. I've had these conversations about these types of apps, of parental monitoring apps, and it seems a lot of times people default to what is the legal children's right to privacy. <laughs> and you always kind of fall back on that framework. But I keep in mind, the 14th Amendment due process clause basically guarantees the constitutional right to raise a child how you'd like within reason. So, you know, yeah. there's a, a strong constitutional argument that parents are absolutely entitled to use this kind of software. There's mm -hmm. obviously it's there's a legal issue there as far as like wiretapping laws and consent to be monitored uh, in certain states. But, yeah, there is absolutely a counterbalance to the legality of, the, of raising your kid in the way that you want to see fit is something that is important here as well. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, away from the legal framework, though, like you said, there are known effects of monitoring adults, of surveilling adults. These are things that we, we know and we've studied, we've seen it. And so assuming that, that, that those effects wouldn't apply to a younger mind seems a bit narrow in scope. It seems like, <laughs> how wouldn't we see those things? It's just nice to see a conversation not be entirely, well, you know, if this law says I can do it, then I should do it. The good thing about working in privacy laws that there's, at least in the United States, is that there's often so few protections that that's rarely a concern of ours. <laughs> that's the good thing. <laughs> the good thing is that, you know, you're rarely constrained in these kinds of discussions about the legal restrictions because there often aren't any. Yes. So let's talk about what there should be. <laughs> right. <laughs> Emery, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show today and discussing this pretty serious but also rather nuanced issue. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Adam Kajawa about security hubris. What is it? How can companies spot it? And what can they do to protect themselves against it? <laughs>